From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Dr. Gerald Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research, joins me to discuss the issue of health care and its potential impact on the midterm election. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Depending on which news outlet you follow, politician or pundit you ask, Americans will soon participate in the most important midterm election in their lifetime. It is, however, a common refrain made every election cycle. The political hyperbole notwithstanding, there does appear to be an emphasis placed this year on the importance of health care. The Affordable Care Act, that at one time was an albatross around the neck of any elected official who supported it, has realized the reversal of fortune. In the 2018 midterm elections, no issue appears to be more important to voters than health care. And a recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll found that voters cite health care as, quote, the most important issue, easily outdistancing the economy. So where does the Affordable Care Act currently stand? Can it be dismantled and replaced by something that maintains coverage for pre-existing conditions, as some have offered? Is America's view of health care a right or a privilege? To discuss health care and its potential impact on the midterm elections, we welcome back Dr. Gerald Kaminsky. Dr. Kaminsky is a senior fellow at the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. Dr. Gerald Kaminsky, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We've been hearing quite a bit that health care, uh, at least from pundits we've been hearing quite a bit, I should add, that health care uh, is an important consideration uh, for the midterm elections. In your opinion, what exactly uh, is, is that important consideration surrounding health care? What, what exactly are people talking about uh, when they say that? So I think that uh, the the reason that so many people are reporting that health care is important for the midterm election is uh, be, for there are several reasons. So one is that uh, last year, in 2017, Republican Congress tried unsuccessfully two times to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, and despite the fact that there are a lot of uh, Republicans who still feel very strongly that the Affordable Care Act is, is not good legislation. Uh, there are millions of people who've benefited from it. And probably the most important reason and consideration that the Affordable Care Act has benefited so many people is that it has produced a guarantee that someone with a pre-existing condition can not only be guaranteed to get an insurance policy, regardless of which state uh, in which you live, but in addition to that guarantee, that you are guaranteed not to be charged a higher premium because you have a pre-existing condition. And these two aspects of the Affordable Care Act, the fact that this was federal legislation that required every state to follow these rules, meant that 
millions of people now had protection that they didn't have necessarily uh, previously. Um, some states did have these protections in place already, but it was only a handful of states that did this. And so um, Republicans, because of their assault on the Affordable Care Act, have created a lot of anxiety in uh, Americans that they're going to lose their health insurance benefits, um, or if they don't lose them entirely, that we're going to go back to the to the old days where an insurance company would say, well, sure, I, I'll offer you a policy, but you're going to be paying thousands of dollars a month or more because uh, you have a condition that um, is more expensive than the typical uh, member. And, and that, that would, you know, um, be going backwards rather than forward. Uh, talk to you, Will, on, on your last answer. Doesn't, as I understand it, um, doesn't health policy or health insurance, I should say, work based on the fact that the reason you can offer um, people with a pre-existing condition because they balance off between those who are healthy? Is it, is, I mean, how how does that whole pool work in the healthcare system? Well, it's the sort of the basic idea of any insurance. I mean, life insurance, automobile insurance, health insurance. The idea is that. Look, you know, uh, at some point we may all need to, you know, use our insurance policy. Uh, but the reason we buy insurance is to protect ourselves uh, financially uh, and to protect ourselves, uh, in the case of health care, to protect our health. Um, our health insurance allows us to maintain our health in addition to helping us pay the bill and protecting us financially when something happens and we do have high expenditures. So I think the, the basic idea of you're pooling risk across a large group of people and that in any given year, a small percentage of people are going to actually need to use their insurance. Um, or even if the percentage is large, that the, the amount of spending is relatively low among most of the people in the insurance pool. Uh, so, you know, people with pre-existing conditions might be on average higher cost on an annual basis, but if you spread that risk among a large number of people, the overall cost remains manageable to everybody. Now, I guess what I was getting at, and you sort of touched on it, is that you can't, and I've heard this banded around, you can't have it work if you just had a pool that consisted exclusively of people with pre-existing conditions. No, oh, that's exactly right. And we've had those uh, situations before, uh, prior to the Affordable Care Act. Many states, <coughs> excuse me, many states had um, uh, what are known as high-risk pools for people who had um, serious pre-existing conditions that required very high annual expenditures. And the reason that high-risk pools don't work well is that You've segmented the population. You've taken sort of some of the people with the high, with the, the who are the sickest, with the highest medical expenses. You've segmented them into a separate pool, and typically those pools, because they were run by states, were not adequately funded. Uh, so people still had high medical expenses despite being in the pool, uh, and there was always a, a, an extremely long waiting list for people to get into the high-risk pool. So um, it, it's 
a mechanism that has not been successful at the state level, and yet it is, again, something that Republicans have said, well, look, this would be a better way to do things. If we go back to a system that didn't work before, um, it will it'll make things better. And the only people who will be better off in that system are people who are consistently healthy year in and year out. Um, and there is a, a percentage of the population that fits into that category as well. But none of us are are exempt from the possibility of having very high medical expenses due through no fault of our own. Uh, and that's why we have health insurance. Uh, I'm wondering, from, from your perspective, given the, the importance of the Affordable Care Act, I, I recall, I'm sure you do as well, that it wasn't that long ago when you had people who supported the Affordable Care Act running away from it in denial that they supported it come the midterm elections. But are we now in a situation where the difference is based on prior, uh, it was more abstract, this could happen. I remember death panels. I remember, you know, we talked, you know, that kind of hyperbole. Now people have the reality um, to juxtapose that. Is that is that sort of where we are politically now? Yeah, I think that that's exactly what's happened. Um, and this is, I, to be honest with you, I think that this is what Republicans most feared. And they tried to shut down the government back in the fall of, of 2013, just before the uh, major provisions, the, the marketplaces and the subsidies, uh, were going to go into effect. Um, the sort of a last-ditch effort to try and keep this law from going into full effect because they knew and, and kind of openly acknowledged at the time that once people started receiving benefits and understood how the law really worked, as opposed to what they were being told by politicians, uh, that there'd be broader popular support. Um, and to be honest, I mean, that, that broader popular support is still somewhat divided. Um, the program continues to be a lightning rod for uh, Republicans um, who still claim that they want to repeal and replace the law, um, but they've also learned along the way that they better do something about pre-existing conditions because that is the one feature that people on both sides of the political aisle agree are protections that are important to people throughout this country. Uh, so Republicans have acknowledged that they've got to say something about pre-existing conditions, otherwise they're going to scare off their own voters um, who've benefited from this aspect of the law. Now, frankly, I do not believe uh, what Republicans are saying about preserving pre-existing condition protections, because I think what they're offering um, is, first of all, very vague, uh, and secondly, really just a thinly veiled return to the prior marketplace, which is, yes, we'll, we'll make sure that insurance companies have to offer you insurance. They can't deny it to you, but we're not guaranteeing that you won't pay a higher premium once you get a pre-existing condition. I haven't, I haven't heard a Republican plan that guarantees no higher premiums for people with pre-existing conditions. And certainly not to be uh, overly partisan, just just pointing out the facts. I mean, Republicans have basically had since 2009 to work on something. And so it, it seems like it's always in, in, you know, in, in the planning stages for whatever policy they're going to roll out. Would that be fair? 
Well, that's my perspective, and, and I don't think that I'm being overly partisan in saying that, but um, it, it does seem that um, despite, again, the rhetoric that we need to repeal and replace this law, we've never seen a fully formed replacement plan uh, that Republicans themselves can agree on. There were two that were put forward last year, and of course they, you know, they didn't get out of uh, past the House or the Senate. Uh, and those, their the approaches were were quite different. Um, so um, we're still waiting to see what that replacement plan would be. When, when you look at the current um, health de- care debate, sir, uh, is there something that you feel is missing from the conversation that needs to be uh, included? Well, I think that the one thing that uh, uh, opinion polls are showing is that there's broad support for the idea or the concept of something like Medicare for all. And um, so part of what's missing from the debate is, well, what does that really mean? What is Medicare for all? And why are so many people in favor of, uh, of this idea and this concept, even if it's vague? And my interpretation of the broad support for the concept of Medicare for all is that I think most Americans recognize that it's fundamentally uh, wrong to provide healthcare, uh, excellent health care coverage to a portion of the population and leave uh, a significant portion of the, uh, the population behind. Um, there's something inherently unfair and un-American about treating people so differently uh, based on their ability to pay. Um, so uh, I think what's missing is a debate about how do we get to a fairer system uh, that isn't based primarily on what's the insurance card that's in your wallet and, and your ability to pay. How do we get to a fair system that uh, is also sustainable and affordable? Um, and we don't seem to be able to get past the rhetoric on it. Um, Medicare for all is dismissed by Republicans as being um, socialism and, and um, unaffordable and a government takeover of health care. And it's anything but. Most Many, many countries have national systems of health insurance uh, that are not complete, a complete government takeover of the health care system. Uh, the health care is provided by private doctors and private hospitals, but the financing comes primarily through the national or the federal government. Is there an is, is uh, industrialized country that does not have um, uh, nationalized health care other than the United States? No. We're, we're unique uh, among uh, uh, high-income industrial nations. Um, and uh, it's a distinction that, uh, you know, is not something we, we should be proud of. But um, it has been true for uh, a number of years now that uh, most, not uh, all other, not most, all other industrial nations, high-income nations, have found a way to provide a government program that covers everyone. It may not cover everything, and it may not, um, uh, you know, uh, provide 100% of, of, of health care spending, but the system is basically financed through the national government uh, with either a small private market or uh, personal expenditures making up the difference. 
You know, one of the things that seems to me uh, that we that, that we seldom talk about is making the connection between, you know, healthcare, access to healthcare, and the impact that that has. You know, say on on, on the on the country's economy. I mean, a healthier populace. Um, is a more productive populace. I mean, that, that seems to be, maybe I'm being overly simplistic, but I rarely hear those kind of connections made. Well, you're not. And I think that the reason that we've, we've sort of like lost sight of that is that we are an advanced economy. And, and a lot of the gains associated with broad access to health insurance uh, were realized uh, in the, starting in the 1930s when health insurance started to become broadly available for the first time. You know, one of the great ironies of the U.S. healthcare system is that we started offering um, uh, health insurance uh, in the worst economic times that this country has experienced in the last 130 years, the Great Depression. It was during the Great Depression that Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans began to take root. Uh, it was private insurance sponsored by hospital associations and uh, medical associations to cover the majority of health care expenses that people had at the time. And they became very popular and grew very rapidly during the 30s and then into the 40s, uh, despite the fact that we went through a decade of tremendous economic turmoil. Um, but people, even in the depths of the Great Depression, understood the importance of having insurance against the, uh, what was even then the high cost of, of health care. You, you, you mentioned earlier in a previous answer, you talked about um, other nations, um, and so they don't. Co- sometimes they don't cover everything, but they, but there is a baseline that all nations provide some some national coverage. I'm wondering beyond the obvious, sir, uh, distinction beyond the obvious distinction, is the practical application given the rising healthcare costs. What is the difference for us uh, as Americans between uninsured and underinsured? How big of a gap between those two exists now? Well, um, that's a that's a great question. Um, uh, the national figures on the percentage of our population that's uninsured uh, we're at around at this point somewhere around seven to eight percent of the population, uh, and in terms of numbers, it's roughly I think the latest estimates are about. Uh, 28 million, 28 to 30 million Americans um, uh, don't have health insurance. Um, And people often then wonder, well, what percentage of those uninsured are uh, undocumented residents uh, in the United States? And the answer is somewhere on the order of 7 to 8 million. Um, So there are, you know, uh, people living in the country uh, without documentation, who are uninsured, but the vast majority are citizens and legal residents of the United States um, who do not have health insurance through any any uh, any mechanism. Um, underinsured, the estimates vary quite a bit, but um, in the last twenty years, there's been a proliferation in the private insurance market and in the employment-based uh, uh, market of high deductible health plans. And for many individuals, you know, those deductibles um, mean that, you know, they may have high out-of-pocket spending um, if they have a major medical event like a hospitalization. So the estimates are that, you know, on the order of 50 to another, 50 to 70 million Americans 
are underinsured because they face high out-of-pocket liabilities um, if they, in fact, require hospitalization or have other high medical expenses. You know, in the public discourse, we the term as we as we were talking today uh, is healthcare, and I'm and, and sometimes I you know I wonder is healthcare a catch-all phrase uh, that really could be delimited, delineated by specifics such as pre pre-existing conditions, lifetime caps, etc., or 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 is it a valid catch-all phrase? Um. Well, it, 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 it captures a, a lot of different dimensions. And um, so uh, I think my opinion is that it is most meaningful when we break it down and talk about uh, the specific. Um, you know, what, is, what are we talking about when we're talking about um, health care for all and paying for health care and the mix of government versus private spending on health care? Uh, what should be government and what should be private? Um, we don't have those debates, and we're not having those discussions at the national level. And I think that what's happened is we've oversimplified and maybe tried to, you know, break things down in a way that um, we uh, create um, uh, simple, try to create simple yes and no votes on um, important issues that are complex and and where we. We need leadership um, from our political leaders, not not rhetoric. And instead, I think that too often we boil things down into rhetoric uh, appealing to voters uh, rather than appealing to sort of the common sense of people and saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about repealing uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act, for example? Do we really want to start taking health care benefits away from approximately 20, pe- 20 million people who've gained health benefits um, since this law was passed. Why would we want to do that? Hmm. Um, so instead we, we get wrapped up in rhetorical discussions, and it's, you know, you, know, it's, it's, you, you see the president uh, at rallies saying we need to get rid of this horrible law, and people are cheering. And when I see that, I say, but wait a minute. Some of you who are cheering to get rid of this law are probably benefiting from it. And in theory, we're all benefiting from it because we never know what our circumstances are going to be in the future. What happens if I lose my job and have to go into the private marketplace, but I have diabetes? Am I going to be able to get health insurance? Why am I cheering to take health insurance away from people when that might hurt me in the future? Um. On that on, on that note, let, let me ask another. Since I'm I'm just full of obvious questions, redundant questions, I guess. <laughs> well, here's here's the other one. Um, this is this is the last one, I promise, and we'll move on to something else. But what is the Affordable Care Act? So the Affordable Care Act is really it's it's a law that says, um, in our system of which is primarily employment based insurance, uh, we've got two big public programs that uh, are aimed at people who don't have employment-based insurance. We've got the Medicare program, which was created primarily for retirees. Um, And we've got the Medicaid program, which was created primarily for low-income people who 
itself through the cracks may be employed but are, have very low salaries and that they can't afford insurance through their place of employment, or maybe they don't get offered it at their place of employment. Um, and then with those two programs, um, there's still people who fall through the cracks. So the Affordable Care Act is an attempt to say, if you don't get insurance through work, through the Medicare program, or through the Medicaid program, we're going to create new insurance markets. We're going to provide subsidies for people. And the second piece of the law is we're going to expand the Medicaid program to let everybody below a certain income level become eligible for the program. So the law was a way of, of, of saying people fall through the cracks in the current system. We're going to try to fill in, fill in those gaps. We're creating basically a safety net underneath. We're not going to get rid of employment-based insurance. We're not getting rid of Medicare. We're going to expand Medicaid so more people can come in. And then for people who don't qualify for any of these other programs, we're going to help out with, with subsidies up to a certain income level so you can buy insurance and so it's more affordable. So with that, um, since, since the uh, since, uh, Affordable Care Act became law and, and all the, the rhetoric of repeal and replace and the votes – in its current state, has it been improved upon since its inception or made worse, in your opinion? It is treading water at this point. Uh, the basic uh, uh, design of the law is still in place, with the exception of the individual, the individual mandate or the requirement that you buy insurance if you don't have it or pay a, a tax penalty when you file your income taxes. Um, and so because the Trump administration is you know, actively looking to get rid of this law but has been unable to do so through legislative action because they don't have enough votes in the House or Senate to pass a bill uh, that is you know, acceptable to both houses, um, instead, they've been looking for other ways to make the law less successful, uh, hoping that popular support for the program will uh, start to, to diminish and that more people will call for the repeal because it's no longer working. Um, it's sort of, you know, they're pushing, they're pushing the law over the cliff and then turning around saying, I'm sorry, uh, you know, it looks like you're falling to your depth. Sorry that that happened. Um, the other word for that is sabotage. And so there's, they've been sabotaging the law. But um, the, the data so far suggests that they haven't been that successful in undermining the law, either in terms of public opinion or in terms of the number of people who continue to enroll in the program. Now, we're about to enter another open enrollment season, and we'll see what happens this fall, given that the Trump administration has been in office for almost two years and has been uh, endlessly trying to make this law work um, less successfully than it, than it was uh, previously. So the bottom line is I think you know, we're kind of treading water. We haven't done anything to make it better, 
the Trump administration has tried to do things to make it worse, um, but it it doesn't seem to be um, uh, successful in diminishing the value of the wall in the eyes of millions of people who are still signing up for the benefits and and um, who have health insurance today compared to four years ago. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Gerald Kaminsky, director of the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. We're talking about the Affordable Care Act, its importance, and its potential impact on the midterm elections. Um, Dr. Kaminsky, you mentioned Medicare for All earlier. Um, again, we, talk, we also talked about you know, political rhetoric earlier. Is that something that's realistic in your view? Well, I think that uh, I do think that a Medicare for All program uh, is realistic in the United States. But you know, I think that it's like anything else. We need to decide how do we get there. How do we expand the Medicare program uh, in a in a way that is uh, affordable, sustainable, um, and keeps to the principles that we have a basically a a healthcare benefit. That um, that everyone is entitled to, um, not just retirees. So, um, and you know, I think that we need to figure that out as a nation. Is it the current Medicare program? Do we begin opening that up to people earlier? Um, that's one proposal that um, has a lot of merit. Um, the Medicare for All approach that. Uh, that Bernie Sanders and others have talked about is a is a much bolder, complete redesign of Medicare. It's not the existing Medicare program, but it's a a bolder and 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 larger uh, vision of what Medicare could be, um, and that's worth discussing as well. Um, but the the point is that you know we as a country can figure this out, and it should be debated. Uh, but what matters is, or we'll never have a genuine debate unless we can resolve the fundamental question which that other countries have resolved in the positive. And that is, we should start, if we've got to start with the premise that everyone deserves equal access to a certain minimum level of coverage. And that's just, there's no, no, Qualifications, no ifs, ands, or buts. Everyone has access to the same system and the same health benefit package. Unless we can agree on that, then we're going to continue to um, just go back and forth uh, and not make any progress um, unless, you know, one party has a sweeping victory that leads to overwhelming majorities in the House, Senate, and in the White House. And, you know, when and if that happens, then we might resolve some of these issues. But um, until we do, millions of Americans suffer when they get sick, don't have adequate health insurance, and find themselves, you know, looking for where can I get care at a free clinic or at the emergency room. And this is the most expensive way to care for people. And now you mentioned the um, 
Bernie Sanders' plan being bolder, um, and I don't know the accuracy of the numbers, uh, but I, I've seen that plan, uh, price tag associated with that plan, a 10-year cost of $32 trillion, trillion with a T. I mean, yeah. that, that's beyond my comprehension. So yeah. is that accurate in your view? or, or you know? So here's, here's uh, the report that you're referring to was produced by um, uh, a conservative uh, organization. And it's intended to produce sticker shock on the part of readers. Uh, when you hear $32 trillion, um, it is mind-boggling. It is truly mind-boggling. The reality is, however, that if we do nothing as a nation over the next 10 years, and, and by the way, that, that, that figure is a 10-year projection, we're going to spend... 30, at a minimum, $36 trillion and probably closer to $40 trillion a year on health care. I'm sorry, over a 10-year period. I said a year. Over a 10-year period, we're going to spend anywhere from 36 to $40 trillion anyway. So what that report, uh, what you're not hearing in the, in the press is that the report says that if we had a Bernie Sanders-like Medicare for all system, we would spend less than we would spend in the absence of that. And it's because the savings associated with Sanders Medicare for all, um, we're not going to have those savings unless we do something to change the way that we pay for health care in this country. But we're currently spending almost, uh, it, this year we'll spend uh, approximately 3.6 to 3.7 trillion on health care. You can project that out over 10 years. It's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, one of the things, and sticking just albeit briefly with fiscal policy, uh, we just had the Treasury Department just reported that um, the deficit has gone up, I believe, 17%. It's up to 700, almost $780 billion. Um, I guess, you know, I guess my question to you is that deficit has gone up largely because of the tax cuts that were enacted. Yeah. But but in, in from your perspective, sir, is this sort of creating that self fulfilling prophecy? Oh, we can't afford health care right now. Is, is that so? We then look at health care as being unaffordable based on other behaviors in another area. Well, you know, this is exactly what was done during the Reagan administration. It's a time honored uh, strategy that Republicans have uh, engaged in for. Uh, certainly for the last 30 years, um, and that is that uh, you run up deficits by cutting, uh, I'm sorry, either by cutting taxes and or uh, rapidly increasing military spending. Uh, And then once those deficits start to balloon, you say, well, we've got to cut social programs because we can't afford these deficits. This is going to strangle the economy. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's, it's you know, this isn't, uh, again, uh, this isn't me being bipartisan. I think that the evidence speaks loud and clear that Republicans have decided that when they are in power, uh, they're going to take the opportunity to create deficits um, through tax cuts and other spending priorities uh, and then try to pay for them by cutting social commitments and social programs. Hmm. Uh, uh- you know, one of the, I guess one of the things that I guess you, you've sort of touched on this earlier, but I, I'd like to have you expand on it. 
um, for, for all we've discussed during our time, isn't the, the doesn't the debate I should say circle around whether one views healthcare as a right versus a privilege? Yeah, I think that that's the fundamental question. Most most other countries, not only high income countries, but um, lower income uh, countries as well, have decided that healthcare uh, is a right, um, and um, for whatever reasons, in the United States, we still view it as a privilege and that we accept that uh, um, uh, people can have very different access to health care depending on their income. And this sort of fits into, uh, you know, uh, an American way of, of thinking and an American way of life that says that, um, uh, you know, I've earned these benefits. Uh, I deserve them, and if other people just did what I did, they they could have access to them as well. And unless they do, I'm not willing to pay higher taxes to support access to health care for people who haven't uh, made it the same way that I have. Uh, and that's a you know, that's one way of looking at the world. But it's uh, um, again, many people, many of us are you know. Uh, overlook the fact that the good fortune uh, that we've experienced um, uh, often comes uh, not necessarily through our own efforts only, but through uh, a complex set of circumstances that have uh, led us to be perhaps more favored or more advantaged uh, than uh, our our neighbor or the person next door. Um, And so, you know, other countries have have figured this out and have reached a different conclusion than we have in the United States. That was Dr. Gerald Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. As many of you know, I am an avid baseball fan, and this week begins the World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox. In commemoration of the Fall Classic, here are four iconic clips from past World Series involving either the Red Sox or the Dodgers. The first, New York Yankees' Reggie Jackson hits three home runs against the Dodgers in 1977 to clinch the World Series followed by Dodgers' Kirk Gibson's walk-off home run against the Oakland A's to win Game 1 in 1988. Red Sox' Bill Buckner's costly error against the Mets in Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. And we conclude with the final out of the Red Sox' World Series victory against the St. Louis Cardinals, ending an 86-year drought in the Curse of the Babe in 2004. Reggie Jackson. Long drive right field. It is. Goodbye. A big, big World Series for Reggie Jackson, despite all the palaver about his discontent with Billy Martin. 
as he comes up with his third home run of the series. Quickly, the Yankees go ahead.
The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh